0: Welcome back to the 16th episode of the Daily Flip podcast. I'm your host, Alex. And today we're going to be discussing some of the top stories, including an article from The Atlantic asking, is this the beginning of the end of the Internet when it comes to free speech? And then two more articles talking about the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, talking about their failures in the past and what their future may look like. And of course, we'll end today's podcast with a segment called The Daily Delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into the stories. Like I said, our first one comes from The Atlantic, and it's called, Is This the Beginning of the End of the Internet? Now, this is a very inflammatory title, and by inflammatory, I should rephrase that. It's a very, very slanted title. They already know what they want to tell you. They already know where they're trying to lead you, and they're trying to make you think a certain way going into it. And they ask some very important questions. So the reason this issue is coming into view is there is a battle going on in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that is Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi called Net Choice versus Paxton. Why this is coming into view and why it's important is the circuit court actually upheld the original ruling of a court in Texas that any social media company with more than 50 million monthly users actually... It's not just applying to social media companies, which is where a lot of the hang-up is. Uh, Any company, any website that has more than 50 million monthly viewers has to not moderate the content. Meaning that if someone posts something, so if you're on Reddit and someone posts a comment that is what the Atlantic would call blatant misinformation or disinformation, the company can't actually take that down. So this is a decision that is First Amendment absolutist to the extreme, meaning that, in theory, YouTube couldn't moderate its content. So if you know a few years ago, there was a big controversy on YouTube. There were lots of terrorist recruitment videos on YouTube, and they were being flagged, but they weren't necessarily being taken down. And then YouTube stepped in, they moderated, and took that content down. But according to this decision, there wouldn't be that clear line. They they would have to leave that content up. They are no longer a publisher in the my eyes of the law that can decide what needs to go from their platform and what can stay. And it also gets rid of the protections as a platform that they could not be sued for moderating it. And that's where a lot of this issue comes from. You also may remember a few years ago the discussion of Section 230 came up. And this is a special protection that allows certain platforms like YouTube, Facebook, Twitter to act as both publisher and as a platform. So they can take down content. They can moderate the content if they doesn't follow their community guidelines. But they also can't be sued or litigated, for taking down that same content. So it's a middle ground that has, as the Atlantic puts it, quote, allowed the internet to thrive, end quote. And I I don't disagree. I think it is a very dangerous provision because it doesn't set out clear guidelines as to what YouTube can and mostly what I'm worried about can't do. But getting a little bit off topic here, let's rein it back in a little bit. So. The quote that I want to pull out here first is an example or a theoretical way of thinking about this that could possibly give you a little bit more context as to what we're talking about now. We've moved on from the 230 debate, or at least this is not directly addressing it. So, quote, In theory, the ruling means that any state in the Fifth Circuit, such as Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, could, quote, mandate the news organizations must cover certain politicians or other certain content, and even implies that, quote, the state can now compel any speech at once on private property. The law would allow both the Texas Attorney General and private citizens to do business in Texas to bring suits against the platform if they feel their content was removed of a specific viewpoint, because of a specific viewpoint, end quote. So, yeah, this opens the door to lots of reckless litigation. Oh, you took down my post? Oh, it must be because you don't like my point of view on the matter. You are discriminating against my political ideology, my religion. So it opens the door for lots of litigation in the future against these companies, And it could possibly swamp them, weigh them down, hurt them with legal fees. So that's why these social media companies and websites are very fearful of this type of move from the uh, Court of Appeals. And I think there's a broader discussion that needs to be had, which is how free do we want our Internet to be? I mean, how much control do you want companies to have over their websites when they market themselves as a free speech platform? And I'll have to hone in on Twitter because other companies don't necessarily say they're a free speech platform. They say they want free speech. Like YouTube, they encourage free speech. But if you break the community guidelines, which though they're not always the most clear, they do try to write them down and have them available for most content creators. But Twitter is trying to be a free speech platform, and most of the restrictions come into saying something that could hurt or was intentionally said to hurt another individual, whether that's calls for violence or, in some cases, even emotional damage. Twitter uh, has stepped in and said, okay, you you can't be saying that. Remove that tweet, please. You're going to cause this person emotional damage. So... That sounds great, and we want to be fair. I understand the thought process. But in a society where these platforms are constantly being used as the, quote, new digital public square, then we have to be able to have those uncomfortable conversations. We have to be able to say something that's not necessarily popular, that may offend somebody, because at the end of the day, we're discussing the future of our nation, now, that also means that we have to approach it in a cordial way, and that's why I think Twitter is terrible for having these discussions because you don't see that person across from you. You don't actually see the look on their face when you say something that is terrible, mean, because you're just trying to get the, the points on Twitter, and you don't have to actually feel the emotional damage. You don't have to deal with the consequences of your actions in live time. So I think it's a terrible place to have those discussions. But nonetheless, it's happening. We're having those discussions on Twitter. So we need to be able to have an environment that not just encourages but fosters free speech. One that allows us to have terrible, hard conversations about oh, migration policy. I mean, nowadays, abortion, that's a huge issue. And maybe you say something that really hurts a mother who had a miscarriage in her uh, first pregnancy. But unfortunately, that's the reality of the situation, which is we need to have some uncomfortable conversations. And some people who have had personal experience dealing with it are going to possibly be offended. But if the platform is open, then not only can they be offended and be, you know, not happy about it, but they can also weigh in on the issue and bring in their personal experience rather than having the ability to just shut that person down and say, no, no, no. I'm not even going to confront you because what you said upset me. It's no, you upset me. This is why, and you need to understand my point of view. And that can be fostered through free speech platforms. And this law is though misguided it is trying to get at the root of it it's trying to get the root at the root of the issue which is these huge platforms anything over 50 million which is still a small restriction in my opinion but anything over 50 million monthly v- users viewers they have a lot of power on the internet nowadays and they have the ability to shut down certain perspectives if they choose not saying they do But if they chose to, they could, in theory. And this is an attempt to even the playing field and say, no, you can't get rid of somebody just for saying something that is unpopular, that is not pertinent or important or relevant to your worldview. You have to sit down and have these conversations and allow both people to speak. Now, I do think they went about it in a pretty misguided way. And what I mean by that is... It's so broad. It's quite literally so broad. It even applies to Wikipedia. So the, the an example they give here in the article, or at least what they were talking about, is that in theory, if you try to edit a Wikipedia page and then Wikipedia decides, no, no, that's wrong information. This person purposely put wrong information up on a Wikipedia page. If they go in to edit it, then in theory they could be sued for doing so because they are, quote-unquote, censoring the person who put up that content. So, yeah, it really is a really broad brush. They're painting really broad here, and I think that could have been on purpose so that it can go up to the courts and the courts can actually deal with this issue because they've kind of been avoiding it. They haven't come down hard on 230, especially the appellate courts and the Supreme Court. So that could have been a tactic of theirs. But I think in order to actually address this, we need to have specific legislation. And if they're trying to get at, the Texas lawmakers are trying to get at, what a social media company is responsible for and what they need to do, then first we have to define what a social media company is. I mean, especially in this digital age where there are so many websites where lots of people come through and visit, this could adversely affect people that aren't social media companies. And I'm almost 100% certain that this Texas law is trying to target those sort of platforms that are meant to be public, where we have discourse. I don't think they're trying to aim at the mom-and-paw shop, who actually is like an original newspaper and is a publisher and can choose what you see on their website. And then the other part is we need to define or at least Make sure that people are aware or have a legal definition of the digital public square. So a lot of First Amendment law is based on the idea of this public square or in the public domain. Because in a private sense, you can you can say, if you're working for an employer, you can say, no, you're not allowed to do this certain, you're not allowed to say this certain thing. You're not allowed, if you sign a contract, you're not allowed to degrade the company. And that's legal because it's not in the public domain. So we need to identify what these online spaces are and call them what they are, in my opinion, a digital public square. And then once we have that framework, once we have those legal terms, at least in use, it allows us to build out. Right now, they're just painting with a really broad brush that's going to adversely affect lots of different websites and companies on the Internet. And I think this leads into a very important point by the author that this is definitely going to go to the Supreme Court. Quote, this case is likely to head to the Supreme Court. Part of it touches on the debate around Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which, despite its political lightning rod status, makes it extremely clear that websites have editorial control. Quote, Section 230 tells platforms, you're not the author of what people on your platform put up but that doesn't mean you can't clean up your own yard and get rid of stuff you don't like. And that has served the Internet very well, end quote. And I I agree to some point. I, we can We've seen the restrictions. We've seen the problems with 230 over the last few years. But in a general sense, it has led to an Internet that has been very friendly and cordial. If you remember the internet when I was really young, and I mean really young, uh, like 2008, which are some of my earliest actual memories, the internet was developed, but it was still a little wild. You could get lost in some some random back rooms. But I have stories from my cousins and also some of my friends who were alive when the internet was in its, quote, wild west phase And though it sounded very fun, it also sounded like there weren't constructive conversations and it was just people trolling back and forth. So I think 230 has served a lot of these companies well, but we do need to reform it or at least have new legislation that clarifies the position of whoever's in charge. Because also... It becomes a little hot-button issue in the future. This can become a hot-button cultural issue that people can throw back and forth, and they can kind of say, oh, well, these social media platforms are banning conservatives. All oh, these social media platforms are spreading disinformation that are hurting the election. They become talking points. And if we never come down with legislation that makes things clear and actually makes it easy for these social media platforms, these digital public squares, to have a guideline, then it's just going to be thrown around like a political football, and we don't need that. We need our privacy online, and we need our freedom of speech online. We don't need it to be thrown around and use us as a voting block. Okay, We we can't be having that. So there is a possible future. The future vision proposed by The Atlantic is you're going to have two versions of each social media platform, each app. You're going to have your wild, wild west where anything goes. You can't be moderated. You could say the most inflammatory stuff. You know, Jordan Peterson's going to be on there saying some crazy stuff. You know, Donald Trump's going to be on there saying some wild stuff. You know that people like Kyle Kalinsky are probably going to be on there trolling from the left. So, You know, I think, honestly, that would be kind of fun. There would be lots of terrible things happening, lots of violent videos of people being harmed, or, um, oh, maybe you should be pro-anorexia, like that type of terrible content or content that's labeled for kids that's actually horrific, scary videos that are going to traumatize them. All of that could be on there, and that's probably not the best thing, but at the same time with absolute free speech, some crazy trolls are going to come out. And I think it would be enjoyable to look at, at least go on there every once in a while and see what the other side of the fence looks like. And then the other version that they propose is the moderated quote unquote civilized. Let me drink my tea version where the companies control a lot of the content and are able to moderate things like they do now, if not more heavily. So, what are you looking forward to? Do you do you see this as a permanent issue, or are you like Alex? You are totally making this too big of a deal. It's not going to end that way. They're never actually going to do anything. Or maybe you're more cynical. Maybe that you think that this is going to come into effect, and then everything's going to go to absolute doo doo, and things are never going to come back from where they were. You know, tell me your opinions, or you know, just yell at the screen right now because you're probably, if you're listening, I know I do it sometimes to podcasts. I'm like, no, 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 Alex, you're wrong. Or no, 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 Joe, you're absolutely crazy. So I get it if you're doing it. All right. So now we're going to pivot to our next topic, which is the progressive wing of the Democratic Party in the United States. And we have two articles here, one from Real Clear Politics and one from The American Prospect. And to be frank, I'll probably be jumping back and forth between them. I have quotes from both of them, but I think that overall it's a very interesting conversation that needs to be had with this outgrowth of the Democratic Party and where they go and what they're going to do here in the future because they've been losing momentum. The Real Clear Politics headline reads, Are progressives nearing a reckoning with the party? Most Democrats perceive the progressive wing and some of the moderate Democrats as failing to capitalize on this uh, moment in time in the political sphere. They have control of Congress, even though it's a very slight one, with Kamala Harris as the tiebreaker vote in the Senate, and they have control over the White House. So, why haven't they gotten more things done? I mean, obviously, if you are politically adept, you know that. Uh, Christian Sinema and Joe Manchin have been a huge, huge problem when it comes to getting the Democrats' and progressives' bills passed that they wanted, you know, these sweeping legislations. Joe Manchin has constantly said that we do not need to be blowing out the budget like that. So you know part of the answer. But I think it it goes deeper than that. Uh, The progressive wing of the party has really lost momentum And in this last uh, midterm cycle, they actually lost a lot of their um, primary elections. A lot of moderate Democrats have been making it to the forefront of the party. And if I was a betting man, I would say that that's because the progressives went a little too far. Some of their policies have definitely... Angered, let's put it that way, some of the more moderate, centrist Democrats, especially the conservatives and even some of the independents that are there in the middle. They are really pushing hard on climate change, and that has moved to the moderate part of the party as well, but the progressives are still the ones pushing it especially the Green New Deal and this apocalyptic view of climate change that in 10 years we're all going to be underwater. Whether you believe that or not, most people don't agree, and they don't want to be that negative. And I understand that the progressive messaging is to get people out there and vote on these issues and to get them to think about the future rather than just the here and now. But it's not as much of a barometer as they think they they get a few really motivated people out on climate change but they're not moving the entire party they're not getting the moderate democrats because of that sort of thing and the other major momentum shift was from the defund the police movement so in after george floyd we saw a huge push from the left and especially the progressives to defund the police. Very progressive locations, Oregon, Portland, Oregon, more specifically uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, jurisdictions like this actually defunded the police and tried to restructure how their systems work. They even put AGs in place who actively took resources away from Certain cops, I take that back, they didn't take the resources away. The city councils did. And then the AG in Minnesota actually spent time trying to prosecute uh, police officers that weren't doing their job and that were wrongfully hurting people. And they were trying to crack down on the police and make sure that they were liable for any of their actions on the job. Whether you disagree or agree with that idea, I don't care. You can't deny that they capitalized on the momentum that was given to them. But as time went on, you saw support for Black Lives Matter go down. You saw support for the progressive candidates go down over time. And I would argue that they didn't best utilize the moment to say, okay, We have this political and emotional capital, especially emotional capital. When you see that video of George Floyd on the ground, it it just makes you sink. It makes your heart stop for a second, go cold. And that's emotional capital that they very well could have used to bring people into their ranks. And what I mean by that is actually have people sit down and start getting educated and bringing them into Programs are making local groups of progressives. And, of course, they did that. And, of course, Black Lives Matter did the same thing, and they brought in lots of funding. But they didn't truly capitalize on this by trying to engage as many people as possible and keep them engaged. They said, oh, look at this momentum that we're, we're doing. We can, we can say defund the police in multiple jurisdictions. We can get people to go out and protest. And they did. But they didn't retain those people. Once the defund the police narrative was over, once that goal was achieved, they lost a lot of those people. So their question now that they've lost a lot of those people is how do they pivot? And there's a great quote from the article uh, that references something that Prima Jayapal put out. Quote, though the police issue has been shelved, progressives intend to push harder for other priorities. And that typically means much funding, not defunding. An over-the-top August editorial prova- actively placed in the Wall Street Journal and titled How Progressives Triumphed in Congress showed Rep. Prima Jayapal, chair of the House Progressive Caucus, is already planning for the next interparty battle. Quote, Progressives inside and outside Congress will continue to fight for crucial provisions that didn't make the final bill child and home care investments, housing, immigrant justice, Medicare expansion, and more, Jayapal wrote, giving progressives credits for delivering the Inflation Reduction Act, but admitting the left was, quote, heartbroken that so much of Build Back Better was left out, end quote. So they obviously are having a strategic pivot here. And one thing that's important that she brings up is Progressives inside and outside of Congress. That is really where the progressives have thrived over the generations. Because a lot of moderate uh, Americans don't want to put a progressive in place, or they don't necessarily agree with all of their policy positions, they normally have been relegated to being activist groups and being special interest groups that lobby and influence people inside Congress for their issues. And that's where this next article also picks up, from The American Prospect. And it really talks about, well, I'll read the title first, Why Progressive Groups Struggled with the Biden Agenda. agenda. And it really focuses in on these special interest groups that work in tandem with people in Congress. And the first thing I want to ask you is... Can you name two pieces of legislation that have been passed or that Congress has attempted to pass in the last two years, not including Build Back Better and the Inflation Reduction Act? So if I was to sit here and someone was ask me that, maybe a few would come to mind because I've read this article, but before reading this article, I would have no idea. I may be able to pull one out of my butt, but even then, I wouldn't be super confident about it. And this really speaks to the problem that these special interest groups that are working outside of Congress had when it comes to Joe Biden's agenda over the last few years. The article quote says it's, quote, a messaging issue. And what they mean by that is, one, it's hard to message certain parts of these bills and get them out to people and make sure that people remember why this legislation is important. But also, the second aspect of that is some of these bills, these reconciliation bills, were so massive. Like Build Back Better was, and the American Jobs Plan, and um, the Family, uh, the American Family Act. All of these bills were massive. They had. Everything you could think of. Tax credits for children. Uh, They had different tax restrictions, new regulation. They had proposals for green energy production, as well as tax credits for green energy production. Oh, they had different things in there. If you saw for EVs, they actually extended some of the tax credits for those under the first uh, 250000 sold. So all of these things were packed into big legislation plans, and I think there's a, a quote that really encompasses it here. And I kind of, I, I really enjoyed uh, the way they put it here. "Quote: The entire party platform would have to fit into one let it ride legislation moonshot, the biggest bill in American history, for the thinnest congressional margin in American history." and quote and it's so true their their margin their lead is so small they literally only have one extra vote in the senate and that's because of kamala harris it's not even a normal majority when it comes to the senators that are there so they're trying to pass these huge legislation packages that encompass so much And not only are they going up against thin margins, but when you have these bills that are so large and they basically, like the article says, they include basically the entire party platform, they're not single-issue bills, it's extremely hard for these progressive special interest groups on the outside to message that. It becomes very difficult for them to hone in on one thing that they think is going to be important for certain people. And when that happens though, when you have these big bills and you are marketing them in a very specific way, remember that one thing that makes one person happy means that 99 other people are going to be upset if there are a hundred different issues that you're trying to associate or fix in this bill. So, it's really hard to get the message across to make sure that you're talking to the right demographic and that you're able to motivate them. And another strategic issue that the article talks about is they made the figurehead in some of these advertising campaigns that progressive groups uh, tried to promote during Build Back Better. They made the uh, person or the symbol a bill that has BBB written across its chest on the Calls the steps of Congress when they should have had, which I think is funny that they're realizing now, they should have had somebody in a hard hat with Build Back Better across their chest just to try to communicate better with the average-day blue-collar American. And they really kind of missed the ball on that one. And I think that they need to slow down. They need to try to get one issue through at a time. They have to work as a unified block, If they are to succeed and move forward and actually pivot, they have to be communicating with the people that are in Congress as well as the special interest groups outside of Congress. Because right now they don't have enough control in Congress alone to get done what they want to get done. So they have to make sure that they are communicating and they also have to make sure that they are talking about issues that they know Americans want solved. I'm not saying that they need a pivot to kitchen table issues like the Democrats and the longstanding Republicans, the establishment folks have, but they need to coordinate and ensure that they are actually speaking to the people or at least speaking to a certain segment of the population Rather than backing these huge, huge bills that encompass so much, they need to narrow their focus and get small victories here and there. And that's what they've been doing for generations at this point. And that's why they're able to actually have members in Congress now that aren't voted out immediately. Because they've been working for generations, slowly but surely, to build their influence, to build a base of people who want to actually solve some of the issues they're talking about. Uh, we actually have a quote here that says, quote, getting a presidential candidate to elevate caregiving was a breakthrough for the movement, al Jen Poe told me, and the testament to how the groups can organize usefully when they have a clear target, end quote. So when they have a clear target, the scope is narrow. Look at what they're able to get done. They're able to get a presidential candidate to acknowledge caregiving, and even get it into legislation over the last two years. So they've had an effective strategy in place, and I think they're getting out in front of their skis because, oh, we're in Congress, we finally have a voice. We know that certain people, they really want the issues we're talking about to be addressed in Congress, and they kind of got out over their skis. So they need to reevaluate and keep going with the grassroots approach. And we'll see how that pans out for him. You know, if I was a political analyst, that was, is what I would say. I am not a political analyst. And maybe a progressive will listen to this and say, Alex, you, you really don't understand this issue. That is 100% possible. I just thought these two articles were very interesting. And when I read them on the same day, I was like, okay, I can bring them up on the podcast because they both have great through lines. Now that we got through all the political stuff and all the freedom of speech stuff, we're going to talk about our daily delight. This one comes from the animal rescue site. Golden Retriever doesn't know how to react. And I'll, I'll leave the last part uh, just because I have a question. Have you ever come home to find a nest of baby kittens lying in your bed? <laughs> well, that's what happened to Bailey, a Golden Retriever from Costa de Sol in Spain. Uh, quote, Bailey is almost unsure how to react as he goes from disbelief to anger and finally acceptance. He appears perturbed throughout the clip and even tries to drag the bed away as if it would make the kittens disappear. As for the kittens, they held their ground and didn't budge from his comfy bed. In the end, Bailey gives in and lies down next to them. However, he doesn't seem thrilled about it. And, you know sometimes you just you got to give in sometimes you know the kittens are just too cute sometimes your dog is lying in the middle of the bed he's just too cute and you don't want to move him so i you know i understand bailey's frustration and if you want to see the cute video of bailey and the kittens it is in the description below that like and subscribe button and with that said only one more thing to say stay safe don't die